Um, growing up, Rocky IV was my favorite movie. Anybody else Rocky fans in here? Okay. Anybody in here not seen any of the Rocky movies? Oh. Hey, come over tonight. We'll watch all seven of them. You know, so. Okay, so. Huh? Skip number seven. And number five. But, um, so, I loved Rocky growing up. In fact, one time, um, I may have done something that might get me in trouble by my mom. So, um, she's here today, but don't tell her what I'm getting ready to tell you guys, because it will get me in a lot of trouble. One day, when I was fourth or fifth grade, I convinced my mom that I was sick, and I needed to stay home from school. And I did this so that I could watch Rocky Four. So, Mom comes in, and she's like, you, are you, you're sick and okay, and so do you need me to get you medicine? And I wisely said, no, I don't, because I was waiting to ask her for medicine once the fight scene came on. So I'm like, no, I don't need any medicine. So then it's getting like to Rocky IV. You're starting to hear the eye of the tiger. Everything's getting, it's building, it's building, and building. It's like, yeah, Mom, I'm really not feeling good. Could you get me some medicine? So she's like, yeah. So she leaves to go get medicine, and I go upstairs and I get my Cabbage Patch doll. Does anybody know what a Cabbage Patch doll is? It's kind of like an American Girl doll, but it was for boys too. At least that's what my parents told me when they bought it for me. Um, so I went upstairs and I, and, and, I, and I brought my Cabbage Patch doll down. Mom's gone. I'm home from school. And the, the, the Rocky fight scene is on, right? And, and Rocky's fighting the Russian. And so there I am. I'm just unloading on the Cabbage Patch doll, just punching it as hard as I can in the face. And I'm picking it up, throwing it. And it's not like it's actually, you know, big-time wrestling. But I'm throwing it down on the ground, standing up on top of the couch, jumping off, elbow off the top rope onto my Cabbage Patch doll, just beating it to death. Because the whole time, I, you know, they're yelling, Rocky, Rocky. But in my head, they're yelling, Brian, Brian. And I'm just, I'm taking this cabbage patch doll and I'm showing him who's boss right so everything's going great and then I hear the garage door open so I have to like get my cabbage patch doll shove him underneath the couch so my mom doesn't see the evidence of like all my fist prints all across his face so I probably get in trouble for that and that I'm really not sick and you know all these other things so so then I, I sit on the couch and I pull covers up over me and my mom comes in and she's like wow you are sweating I think your fever is starting to break and I was like yeah or I showed the cabbage patch doll who's boss you know it's, it's one or the other one and um but that was my experience with staying home from school so that I could act out Rocky IV uh, but I loved the movie Rocky growing up and I feel like a lot of people have seen the movie Rocky so I have a question people can talk out loud what are the movie the movies of Rocky really all about anybody Loud enough, I can hear you. <laughs> huh? The underdogs, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's really all about who? It's about Rocky. You know, it's not, this, the movies of Rocky, it's not about how Mick becomes the best manager that's ever lived. It's not really about how Apollo Creed gets killed in the boxing ring. It's not really about Adrian, his wife. It's not really about his kids. It's about Rocky, right? And when we read the Bible, I think oftentimes what we do is we think that this is a story about us. And so we read it thinking this is a story about us, but really it's a story about God. Now in the movie Rocky, there, it's the story about Rocky, but it includes other people. It includes Mick, it include, includes Apollo Creed, it includes, and, and they've been invited to be a part of that story. But really what I think as we've been going through the whole Bible, one of the biggest things I want people to remember as, we, as you come to this book is it is a book about him, but he has invited people to be a part of the story. It's not a book about us, it's a book about him, but we've been invited to be a part of the story. 
And I think that there's two classifications of people. There's people who are either seeking to live their life in his story, or they're seeking to live their life with him in their story. And I think that that's the only two classifications of people. So I ask the question is, do you live life like it is God's story that you are a part, that have been included into, that you are invited into, or are you living your life that it is your story and that God may or may not be included in that? And really, the movie Rocky, it's all about Rocky, and other people have been invited in the story. And the crazy thing is that God has sent this invitation to people to be a part of the story from the very beginning. You go all the way back to Genesis, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. He invites them to do something. He invites them to, ha to have dominion over the animals. He invites them to walk with him in the garden. And then that continues all the way through, all the way you get to Jesus. And what's Jesus say? Jesus says, come to me. He says, follow me. Peter, um, even one time, because Jesus is walking on water, says, if that's really you, tell me to come to you. And so Jesus invites him to walk on water. Jesus invites the people to go see an empty tomb. He, Jesus invites the people to touch the scars on his hands. All throughout Scripture, you see this God the story is about him, but he is inviting people to be a part of the story. So my question is, are you a, being living a, as a part of that story? Um, today's message is predominantly for people who would say, yes, I, I feel like I have accepted that invitation to be a part of God's story. And if you'd say, you know, I'm kind of new to this whole church thing. I, you know, I, I come sometimes, I'm willing to go to church, and that's kind of about it. I'm not sure if I really want God really, really in my life. I'm not sure if I really want to live the way that he wants me to. If that's you, in a way, the message isn't really totally for you, but I'll have some things to say toward the end. But today, what we're going to do is, we've been studying through the Bible, right? And that's what these, these symbols are. And next week, we come up with the last one. And so next week, we've started in January, and we will be done telling the whole story of the Bible. Just a real quick overview of the whole story of the Bible. And then we're going to pick up in wisdom literature. But so far, God's created everything. Everything was great. And then man messed it up. Man fell. And it was this pointing forward that because everything's broken, something else has to happen. What has to happen is Jesus comes. And when Jesus came, he lived this life of faith, hope, and love. And he, and he died on a cross, and he rose again. He gave the Spirit. And then now once they have the Spirit, the church begins to grow. But it's all pointing toward that something else is going to happen. And next week, spoiler alert, what happens next week, it doesn't actually happen next week. But what we're going to talk about next week is that Jesus comes back. I'm not predicting that Jesus is coming back next week. I'm just saying that that next week we'll talk about the, the last part of the story is that he's coming back. Well, I don't know if you've realized, but he's not back. Like, we're not ascended. We're not in heaven right now. We're, we're, that's not where we're at. And so we, all of us who are living out that story, we are living in this era. This is where life is. Is all of this stuff has happened, and now we're living that there's something else that's going to happen for those of us who are a part of God's story. And so that's where we currently are living in this sideways era. Well, today, for us to talk about what does our life look like as we live in this era, I'm going to go back to this era. I'm going to go back to the book of Numbers to show a picture of what I think we should know as those of us who've accepted this invitation to be a part of God's story. Now, I'm going to do something really weird. The part of Numbers that we're going to talk about today, first of all, a lot of people, when they start reading the book of Numbers, they're like, wow, there are a lot of numbers in this book. That's why it's called Numbers. And a lot of times when we start reading that or when we start reading genealogies, we go, wow, this is really boring. Let me get to the good stuff, right? 
But if you do that in the book of Numbers, I think that you will miss some amazingly cool things, and we're going to talk about some of those things today. So that's what we're going to be. Let me remind you of the story of what all's going on to get us to the point of Numbers chapter 2. So God has his people, right? And his people become slaves. They're in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. But God uses a guy by the name of Moses, and he uses a Passover lamb to draw his people out of slavery. Remember, if you were here, he cro- they crossed the Red Sea, and there's like 600-foot walls of water as they travel through 11 miles through the water. And, and so it's just this crazy story. But they, they were slaves, and then God brings them through, and now they're free. And so they're free. Everything's great, right? So God's like, hey, because I've rescued you, because you are my people and I've saved you, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. Because you've been saved, I want you to live as if you are free. And so here's how you live if you actually are free. It's kind of the the Ten Commandments. But then as Moses is up on this mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God, the people are down there and they've built a golden calf. And they're worshiping this golden calf like as if it is what brought them out of Egypt, right? So they're worshiping this golden calf. Moses comes down. He's like, what are you kidding me? Breaks the stones. And it's because of that that there is this separation. It already was, but it's another picture of this separation between God and people. And so the tent, God God encourages Moses to make a tent. And the tent would be outside of the camp. And it's called the tent of meeting. And it's in Exodus chapter 33, 34. There's some really cool parts about about this tent of meeting. But the tent of meeting is where you can go to experience God's presence. But because of this break, it's outside the camp. So outside the camp, there's a tent of meeting, and if you want to go experience God's presence, you go there. Well, in Exodus 34, 9, it says, God says, no longer will, the, will my presence dwell outside the camp. My presence will dwell among you. And so what happens is in Numbers chapter 2, Um, because of Moses' intercession before God, there's an arrangement of camp. And so what we're going to read today is really weird. Think about if there was people camping. All of us were on a camping trip. Some of you are already like, nope. But we're on a camping trip, all of us, and there's an aerial photo and there's a picture taken of us. Numbers chapter 2 is almost a written description of a picture of a campsite. So what we're going to read today is the picture of a campsite. And we're going to try to see what does this picture of the campsite tell us how we should live as we're in the wilderness. So these, going back to the Exodus, okay, so these people, they have the tent of meeting that's outside the camp. And the, but what has happened is God has rescued them from slavery, and they're on their way to the promised land. And I say that because really if you think about um, that section, the section of Scripture where the wilderness, that really describes us today perfectly. God has rescued, those of us who've been in, who are, have accepted that invitation to be part of God's story, God has rescued us from slavery, and we're not in the promised land yet. And things aren't always great as we're traveling through this wilderness. And that's really, this section of Scripture shows so perfectly what our lives really look like. We've been rescued out of slavery but we're not in the promised land yet. And so today is, how should life look for those of us who accept that invitation to be part of God's story? How should life look as we walk through this wilderness? Again, Numbers chapter 2. Let's read. um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 34, but because I know you guys, and I don't mean this mean to you, 
if I read all of these numbers and if I mess up all of the names of the chiefs of each one, you're going you're gonna to miss what, what the cool parts of this are. So I'm reading Numbers chapter 1, verse 34. I'm adding nothing to it, but I'm taking certain parts out so that it reads a little bit easier for us. So Numbers chapter 2, verse 1 through 34, and again, skipping a couple different parts. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp by his own standard. With the banners of their father's houses, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, then the tribe of Zebulon. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. And next to the camp, and those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, then the tribe of Gath. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp. As they camp, so shall, be, so, so shall they set out, each in his position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, and next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, then the tribe of Benjamin. They shall set out third on the march. And on the north side there shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, and those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, then the tribe of Help me, somebody? Anybody? Okay. I didn't go to seminary, so it's fine. I can read it however I want. They shall set out last by the standard, and then it ends in verse 34. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all the Lord had commanded to Moses, so they camped by their own standards, and they set out each one in his clan according to his father's house. Let's pray. God, um, I need you to communicate what it is that you've put on my heart today. Um, so God, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that people would hear not from the voice of Brian, but they would hear the voice of God. And God, I pray that you would just um, really um, show us amazing things from your word. As I think through, even in Psalms, I think it says, Show me wondrous things in your words. And so, God, I pray that that's what you would do even now. Again, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we have this picture of how they're camping. And I want to talk about three things about this picture of how they're camping that I think we can really learn from as we walk through our own wilderness journey. As we've been rescued from slavery, those of us who accept that invitation to be part of God's story, and what life looks like while we're marching through the wilderness prior to us getting to the promised land. The first one is this. If you look at how they are to camp, it says that they shall face the tent of meeting on every side. And so the way that they are to camp is facing the tent of meeting. Where, what's the tent of meeting? It's where God's presence dwells. And so they are supposed to keep their eyes on God. And why is that? If you think about that, God leads them a pillar by cloud and fire by night, right? And so what's God saying in this? He's saying, look, you need to keep your eyes on me to know where you're supposed to go when you're supposed to go. 
And so it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, that says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race that is set before us, and then this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of God. But what it's saying is that we need to fix our eyes on Christ. For as we are traveling through this wilderness, as they were traveling through their wilderness, they were to camp in such a way to remind themselves, I'm supposed to be looking to God. He is the one who's supposed to lead me. He is the one who's supposed to guide me. He's the one who tells us when we camp and when we, we set out and when we stay still. And that's what it should look like for our lives, is that we are looking to him to lead us. It reminds me also of um, Philippians chapter 3. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But we look at, we keep our eyes fixed on him. We forget what is behind. And you know what I so many of us, we go through our lives and we're looking at so many things other than God. We're looking at past failures. We're looking at the success we desire. We're looking for money. We're looking at all these things other than what we're supposed to. And, and, and a friend of mine, John, and I have been talking recently. How many people in here have watched the movie or read the book, The Shack? Anybody? Okay, I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't. But in this, there's a guy by the name of Mac. And he gets, like, one of the worst possible things that you can imagine in his life happens. And so this horrible thing happens in his life, and uh, he gets stuck. In fact, there's a line in the book that says he realized, this guy Mac, because of this horrible thing that happened in his life, he got stuck, and Sunday prayers and hymns weren't cutting it anymore if they ever had. And the thing is, is all of us in this room, we have all these things that happen in our lives, and all of us can get stuck when our eyes are not on all of us get stuck. And, and the thing is, we get stuck over some small things, we get stuck over some big things, but all of us get stuck over things. And in this, this horrible thing that happened in his life, it made him look at his circumstances rather than look at God. And the, and the thing about this campsite that I think is so important for us to realize is they were commanded to camp in a way facing God, and it's to remind them that God wants to lead us. But if our eyes are not on him, then we don't know where to go. If our eyes are not on him and they're on our circumstances, if they're on relationships, if they're on um, things that we desire in our life rather than on him, we are going to be missing out on where he's leading. And so the first thing about that camp is um, keeping our eyes on him because they were to camp in such a way that they were facing the tent of meeting. The second thing is this. Um, so the way that they were to camp, right, the, the tent of meeting was at the middle of the campsite. But then when they left, when they were walking, when they were marching, two of the tribes went first, and then the tent, and then two more tribes. And so it almost seems, at first glance, as if the people are protecting the tent of meeting. Like, let's surround the tent of meeting so that nothing can happen to the tent of meeting. That's what it kind of seems like. And as we're, as we're traveling, you guys set off first, and then you guys, then the tent of meeting, and then you guys, so that way it's protected. But my question is, who's really protecting who? The tent of meeting is not being protected by the people. God is protecting the people. 
and he is at the center of it. And if in our lives, if Christ is at the center of our lives, that brings protection. That is where we are safe. Um, there's a section in this, as they're traveling through the wilderness, there's this guy, um, uh, Balaam, Balaam, I don't know. He's, we'll call him Blame because we can blame him for the bad things. But he stands up on this mountain and he's trying to curse the people. And he can't. Because God will not let him. And for those of us who are in Christ, what we need to realize is that even though we're, there's curses being shouted upon us, God is not letting those come through. He's trying to, to curse the people and it can't happen. And the reason why is because God is at the center of them and he's protecting them. And as we march through this life in the wilderness, what we need to realize is that God himself is protecting us. And as I was reading through this and thinking through this, this, this protection comes because of the intercession of Moses. They were, the, 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 uh, God's presence was outside of the, the, the camp, but because the intercession of Moses, the camp is brought inside and it's at the center of it. And it's the same thing that Jesus does in our lives. We were separated from God, but because of the intercession of Jesus, Jesus can be in us. And so, it reminds me too of um, John 14, 6, Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is at the center. And, and here's the thing that's crazy. If you know much about the Bible, where God's presence would dwell was in this tent of meeting. But then over time, what happens? They build a temple, and God's presence is in the temple. And then Jesus comes to earth, and where's God's presence? It's in Jesus. And then Jesus dies on a cross and he rises again. And where, his, where does his presence go then? It's in his people. We are a temple. For those of us who are in Christ, we are a temple of God. And so God's presence has, has gone all the way to where it is in us. And, and the, the center of this camp, the tent of me being the center of the camp, it points to the fact that for those of us who are in Christ, Christ is in the center of us. And he's there in the same way for, for our protection. And so as we march through this wilderness, we need to rem be reminded that the campsite, pointing with our eyes toward God, toward the tent, that's what, how we need to live our lives, but with our eyes toward him. Um, the second thing that we do is we camp in such a way, we live our lives where Christ is at the center. And if we are in Christ, that's already happened. Now, the third one um, is the one that gets me fired up. So I was reading this. I've known what we're going to teach on for about six months because we're going through the whole Bible. So it's pretty clear, like, okay, we're going to pick up here, here, here. So it was probably three, four months ago where I knew what was going to happen here today as far as the teaching goes. And I'm reading through this. And like, there, have you ever had a time as you're really seeking through God's word, you see something and you like, it's like blows you away. And you, like, can't put the Bible down. And you're reading and reading, like, holy moly, look at this. Like, does anybody not see this? Like, you're super excited. And I had one of those moments. And, and here's what it is. This, uh, I don't want to call it a story, but this history is written 1,400 years about before Jesus. 1,400 years before Jesus, God commands the people to camp in a certain way. But here's how he tells them to camp. The tent of meeting is here. To the east, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon. To the south, Reuben, Simeon, Gad. To the west, 
Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin. To the north, Dan, Asher, the name I can't say, Naphtalia. What does it form? It forms a cross. 1,400 years before Jesus is even born, God tells them to camp, and their campsite forms a cross. And I want you to think about the ramifications of this. As um, Balaam is up seeking to, to, to curse them, what is he seeing? He sees the cross. As people are coming around and are looking down upon these Israelites, they're seeing the cross. 1,400 years before Jesus, they're camped in such a way that no matter who's looking upon them, they see the cross. What would it look like if as we walked through this wilderness, we had our eyes fixed on Christ, he was living in the center of us, and when people looked at us, they saw the cross. What would it look like if it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me that people see? What would it look like if it wasn't us trying harder and harder to be better people, but they saw Jesus, that Jesus did something that changed us? I was thinking about this. Um, have you ever um, cut yourself pretty bad and bled quite a bit? I, I have, and it was a horrible, stupid thing to do, but I was trying, we have uh, the, the duct work that your heat system comes out of, right? And um, I'm trying to push the duct work piece back in. So I'm using a screwdriver, which is a great piece of tool to use to do that. And it slides off and then the, my finger lands directly on the ductwork and it cuts my finger like into the, cuts like my fingernail even kind of off. Um, at that, that point in time, blood just doesn't like come out. It kind of like sprays out, which if you're squeamish, I apologize. Lunch isn't going to be great for you today. Um, especially if you cooked a, if you uh, have a not super done steak. Um, sorry, sorry. But my finger is really, really bleeding. And once you get it to finally stop bleeding and you wash your hands, you can still see that it's stained by the blood. What would it look like if in our lives we are stained by the blood of Christ? When people look to us, they would see the cross because we've been stained by the blood. What if the fact that God is a loving God stains us? What if the fact that God forgives us, stains us in such a way that no matter what other people do to us, I'm able to forgive. What if the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the mercy of Christ, it stains us? I don't know how, but in the Bible it says that we are washed by the blood of Christ. And I don't know if you, again, if you've gotten blood on you, it doesn't seem like it washes. It seems like it stains you. But what I think as we march through the wilderness, if we are a people who are stained, we're stained by the blood, then the people who walk around us wanting to curse us, the people who, who are standing upon a mountain looking down upon camp, they will see our lives and they will see that they've been stained by the blood and they will see the cross. Here's something else though. I think um, the Christian culture has lied to us for years. Um, I think one of the worst statements, which is a true statement, but only partially true, that the church has used for a while is about a personal relationship with Christ. 
and, and we want you to come into a personal relationship with Christ. And, and God is very personal. He wants to have a relationship with you, but it is not an individualistic thing. There is a call to be a part of something more than just, I'm going to spend time with God. You cannot be what the Bible describes as a follower of Christ apart from community with other people. God all the time throughout Scripture is talking about a people, plural. And the same thing goes for us, is, is the only way that people are going to really look from the mountain and see the cross is if we, as each other, show them that. If not just I'm stained by the blood, but you're stained by the blood, I'm stained by the blood, and people look and they see how we care for each other. They see how we love each other. They see that we're not a place that talks bad and that gossips about other people. Did you hear what such and such did? Oh, man, they sinned big. You're right, they did. So did you. And now you're doing it again because you're pointing out somebody else's. But what would it look like if when people look at the church, they see a people stained by grace, stained by forgiveness, stained by the love of Christ? And then anyone who's camping around looks down and they see the cross. Again, 1,400 years before Christ is going to come, they are commanded to set up their campsite and it forms a cross with God's presence at the center, with them camping with their eyes on God's presence. I'd love to tell you that this goes great for them. And yeah, they just, they had this campsite and it solved all their problems. It doesn't. God, throughout this whole time, has been raining manna, bread, basically, down from heaven for them. Every single day, they wake up and there's enough bread for their whole day. You know what happens in a couple chapters? We really want meat. This bread's getting old. I'm kind of the opposite. You know, everybody's trying to do the high protein, low carbs. Man, bro, I'll take the carbs. Bring me the pizza. I'm fine with that. But the thing is, is that their campsite was there to kind of show them some things, but it doesn't work for them. They're complaining. And then not long after, they, they get close to the promised land. They said, let's send in some spies to go look at the promised land. They go send the spies and look at the promised land. They're like, whoa, this is, this is the people there are really big. We can't do this. And they doubt who God is. God has invited them to trust him. He's invited them to that he wants to be their God and they will be his people and they lack the trust in him. And so they wander through the desert for 40 years and God says, I'll take the next generation in then. If you don't want to go into the promised land, that's fine. I'll take the next generation in. But for those of us, as we're wandering through this wilderness, through this life, oftentimes we look just like them. God has given us a job. We want a better job. God gave us a spouse and she wants a better one. You know, not really, but. God has provided a house, we want a nicer one. God has, you know, all of these different things. We, we look through our lives and we're never satisfied, we're never content. You know, I got a guitar, but I'd like a better one. I don't know if that's you, dude. You got, probably, got a, probably got the best one you have, they can get. But, um, but all of us, we go through life and we're not content and we look just like the Israelites, but God gives them this beautiful picture of a campsite where they're where they're camping faced at the tent of meeting, facing at God's presence. They're camping with one another. This community's important, and they're camping, and it forms a cross, and God's presence is at the very center of them. 
my challenge and my encouragement for us as a people is that we, as we walk through the wilderness prior to getting to the promised land, prior to Jesus coming back, that we would be a people who fix our eyes on him. We would be a people who Christ is truly at the center, and we would be a people that as we live with each other, as we communicate with each other, as we care for one another, that people would see the cross. Is that what's happening in your life? As I um, was thinking through this, um, the song, um, Christ Be All Around Us, came to my mind. I don't know if people know the song, but in it, there's a line, the chorus, I believe, it says, above and below us, before and behind us, in every eye that sees me, Christ be all around me. What's so crazy, Christ was camped out at the very, or God's presence is in the middle of the camp, at the very center, but something crazy happened, and it's because they formed a cross that God's presence was all around them, protecting them, guiding them, leading them, and my desire is that as we read through, we would see that God wants to lead us to protect us, and he wants us to be stained by his blood. This text of pointing forward that something else is going to happen, but we're just walking through this wilderness. I feel like as we look back to this, we see a perfect picture of as we walk through the wilderness, what it should look like for us. We, we set up our camp in such a way that we're facing Christ. We set up our campsite where he is at the center of what we're doing. We set up our campsite in such a way that the way that we spend time with each other, the way that we encourage each other, the way we talk to each other, that it forms a cross. But here's the deal. Why, do, why can we do that? It's not because I try harder to do it. It's because of Christ. We need to be stained not by, by our works trying to look better, but we're stained by the fact of what he has done. When you look at and you really read through the Bible, you see his creative creation. You see his amazing grace. You see his unlimited patience. You see his passionate pursuit of people. You see about his unbelievable forgiveness and this open invitation to be in this relationship with God where you can walk with him. Moses spends time with him and it says he's like he's face to face with God. And I was thinking about um, as Moses would go to the tent of meeting and he'd spend time in God's presence, when he would leave that, his face would shine. His face would shine. And he'd have to put a veil over his face because his face would shine so much. And what that was is that he was stained by the presence of God. If we would be a people that become stained by the presence of God, as we're on this wilderness, that is what God has called us to do. That is what he's done for us. Now, this whole Bible, just like the movie Rocky, Rocky is all about Rocky, but other people are included in the story. This is all about God. But we have been invited by this amazing God to be a part of his story. So again, I ask the same question I asked earlier. Are you living your life in God's story? Or are you living your story and may or may not be inviting him into your, into your story? But the thing is, is God wants us to live for his story. And if you are one of those people that I mentioned that maybe you're like, I'm, I'm kind of new to this whole God thing, um, really being a, like, a, like a Christian that's like weird, because a lot of them are. Like, I don't know if I really want that. 
then really what it is is that you're living your life and you are being, you're the center of your story. And you're trying to decide if you want to add God into that. But God is not asking you to add him into your story. He's asking you to give up on your story and to live in his story. There's a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a pastor in Germany um, when Nazi Germany was going on. And he's like, this is not okay. He stood up to what was going on, and he was imprisoned. He was later put in a, in a Nazi training camp, or a concentration camp, and later was hung and killed. But he said, when Christ calls us, let me read the exact quote. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. God is not asking you or not inviting you to add him to your story. He's asking you to give up on your story and to live in his. It is not easy. But I can tell you this. I lived my life for years on my story. And you know what I found out? It wasn't working. It led to pain. It led to misery. It led to destruction. And I am thankful that there was an invitation for me to come to be a part of his story. And if, and if you've never done that, I want you to know that, that this story that God is inviting you to be a part of is way bigger than you. It's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than all of us put together. It's a story that has been going on since the creation of time. And it's a story that we're still in the middle of because at some point he's coming back. Um, the campsite was designed that they keep their eyes on his presence that he would be at the center, that they would be stained. So do, are we a people that truly live in God's story to the point that our eyes are on him, that he is at the center, and that we've been stained by his blood? Let's pray. God, I am oftentimes amazed at um, what we would oftentimes call the irony or the coincidence of the fact that 1,400 years before Jesus would, would be born, Scripture points to a campsite forming a cross. Uh, maybe I'm too easily blown away. But God, I pray that just as we are wandering through the, de through the wilderness and we are not yet into the promised land. God, I pray that we would think about this campsite and it would remind us to keep our eyes on you, knowing that it's you who wants to lead us. You don't want our eyes on you just for no reason, but you want to truly lead us. God, you want us to be at the center because you want protection for us. So God, I pray that as we think of the campsite, we be reminded that it is you who, who, who is protecting us. And God, I pray that just as that campsite formed a cross, God, I pray that we would be stained by the cross. God, I thank you that in Jesus there's forgiveness. I thank you that in Jesus there's grace, there's compassion. And your word says that we love because you first loved us. We can forgive because you have forgiven us. Those who have been forgiven little, for, forgive little. Those who have been loved little, love little. But God, you have loved us much. You have forgiven us much. And so God, I pray that people all across this room, that myself included, that we would be stained 
by Christ. That when people look to our campsite, the way that we live our lives, I pray that people would see the cross. In Jesus' name.